Shabbat Shalom. This is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Bet Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 14. Vayera, I appeared, out of Shemot, Exodus 6, 2 through 9, 35. If you have any questions or comments, subjects you'd like me to research and speak on, please go to our website at rabdavis.org and click on Ask the Rabbi and I will be happy to get back with you. So this week's Parashah, God declares his name very clearly. He explains to Moshe and us that he manifests himself in different roles, not as different entities. Although he is a cod, he is a complex unity. This expands the concept of one person, many roles, and not a trinity as taught in Christianity. He is not three separate people. God makes it clear to Moshe that he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, which translates as nurturer or the rested one stating unequivocally, quote, I did not make myself known to them by my name, yud Hey vav Hey, which translates, hand behold, nail behold. So right away, in the tetragrammaton of God's name, we see Yeshua. And indeed, he is the same, one and the same. Note that he doesn't say Yahweh. There is no W or J in Hebrew. One more point about the name Hashem, that means the name. It's important to realize that the modern tradition followed by rabbinical Jews is in direct conflict with God's Torah on this matter. And that's out of Exodus 9.16. This passage makes it clear that God's name is to be declared, declared throughout all the earth and there is no prohibition against speaking the name. We're simply not to use it in vain. Yahweh goes on to tell Moshe he's about to manifest another of his roles. This time is Adonai executing judgments on Pharaoh and all he represents. He's got mercy and guidance to the Israelites. He is about to take his own. And we want to know, why does he do this? In verse 6-7, we learn of our first and foremost purpose for living and for being chosen as are all true believers described by Yeshua in the book of Revelation. Quote, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Adonai. Now this applies to those who love and follow God out of loving obedience. Not every Tom, Dick, and Harry who chooses to do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. Before we complete this sentence, let us look at this in pieces. The first section speaks of God in the role of ultimate creator who chooses the Israelites as his people, regardless of their so-called righteousness. He has the right to choose whomever he will for whatever he reason he will, as we shall explore further in a few moments. Keep in mind, humans have free will, and many are called but few are chosen simply because of how we choose to execute our free will. This part of the sentence set the stage, so to speak, for the future of Israel and all true believers. Exodus 12.49 The second part states, quote, Who freed you from the forced labor of the Egyptians, unquote. Now, with our previous knowledge that Egypt in the Bible represents the epitome of a sinful lifestyle, God is prophetically speaking of his future manifestation as God and Yeshua with the purpose of freeing or delivering the people from sin. A proof text is found in Exodus 13.21. Quote, Adonai went ahead of them in a column of cloud during the daytime to lead them on their way, and at night in a column of fire to give them light. Neither the column of cloud by day nor the column of fire by night went away from the front of the people. Look up this verse in the Hebrew Bible. The word ha'ish means fire. 
By the way, this verse also supports the fact that Yeshua executes judgment and is not all love. Exodus 6.8 continues the history and future of true believers, that is Israel. And I'm talking about, again, according to Yeshua's definition of a true believer. This is found in Romans 1 through 3, it's found in John chapter 14, and it is found in Revelation. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as an inheritance. I am Adonai. Unquote. What an awesome, humbling, and beautiful promise. Deductive reasoning and hermeneutics allow us to apply the events described by Yeshua in our Padishah to the continued quote-unquote race to win the prize described by Rabbi Shaul or Paul in Acts 17.11, in Philippians 3.14, and in 1 Corinthians 9.24. The end times described in Matthew 24 and the wedding of Israel to Yeshua in Revelation. It is not the church. It is not the church. The bride of Yeshua is not the church. The bride is Israel, defined as all true believers. Again, it is not all biological Jews, not all the people living within the geographical uh, confines of Israel at the time. It is those who have, have accepted Yeshua's sacrifice and follow the commands of God. And that's what he said. That's the song of Moshe and the song of the Lamb. There is so much in God's Torah to show those two things are inexplicable, and we must have them both for our salvation. Or we just won't make it. Believe what you will. So the borders of Israel are quite different today. And Israel is about the size right now of Rhode Island. But it has not been occupied in its full uh, uh, geographical boundaries as set by God. Now there must always be an interaction between two of anything for a relationship to exist. So it is between God and Pharaoh. Blessings and curses related to our willingness to lovingly keep God's commands or reject them. God as Adonai tells Pharaoh through Moshe to let the Israelites go and worship him, God, or else. God tells those who would be considered true believers the same thing. Exodus 15, 25-6 For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction in the natural universe. But in the spiritual realm, we know, or should know by now, that Yahweh Yeshua has done and does more for us than we can ever do for him. He doesn't need anything from us. We need him. What we do for him is a reasonable service and an ongoing system of checks and balances designed for our spiritual growth. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be fooled into thinking that artificial manipulation of our bodies makes us a living sacrifice or set apart for God with which he'll be pleased. Being set apart for God as one of his people means coming to him as we are on the outside with a changed heart on the inside, one that wants to serve only him. Being set apart for Yahweh Yeshua includes everything we think, say, and do. Check Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 11. If we strive to incorporate, internalize, act upon the words of God's Torah, we will continue to ascend toward God as we descend in our love for ourself. Again, the reciprocity of energy expenditure is manifest in this concept. Interestingly, it is a relationship of inverse ratios. It took me a long time to get that when I went through my math classes and, and geometry, algebra, and all of that, but I certainly get this. The more we nullify self, the closer we get to God in our spiritual growth. 
Another way to look at this in a physical sense is to imagine a bride walking down the aisle toward her groom. The closer she gets to him, now he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home, but that's hard to find these days. The closer she gets to relinquishing certain freedoms she enjoyed as a totally autonomous individual. Likewise, the closer she gets to the groom, the closer he gets to assuming the responsibility for her protection and well-being, relinquishing his freedom to move from one relationship to another without commitment. That's the way it's supposed to be. God, seeing the people he's about to separate unto himself, begins the process of removing all threats from her by way of dealing with Pharaoh, that is Egypt. Yet the process still provides an opportunity for the aggressor to repent before experiencing the consequences metered out for each act of rebellion willingly chosen by Pharaoh. And so it goes with us. We have gazillion million chances, but one day they'll run out and we don't know when. I'm not a gambler and I hope you're not either. Pharaoh's responses, by the way, foretell the stubbornness we may observe in our own society now and in the future as even when people are burned by intense heat and when the fourth bowl is poured, described in the book of Revelation, they will curse God. Revelation 16.9 We must read our Padasha carefully. Pharaoh chose his destiny, as do we. The statement that Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh is a Hebrew idiom in which an action verb is used to express not the doing of something, but permission to do it. God allowed Pharaoh to choose his destiny just as he allows us. God responds to our free will choices and condemns those who ascribe this to fate by stating we have no free will. Check Jeremiah 18.12, a point also reflected in 2 Timothy 2.20-21. 2, in another context, we must remember to exercise a little patience when people visit a synagogue or ask us questions about our faith in other venues. Using the Padishah as an example again, a, uh, a giant great plague would not have convinced the Egyptians as thoroughly of God's existence as several smaller ones. If Egypt had been wiped out at the first moment of refusal, they never would have been afforded the opportunity of teshuva or repentance. After each plague, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had an interval in which they had time to think about their errors and repent. God's time out. Similarly, if a visitor tells us they're going to go out to pork lovers of America pig roast, we should not condemn them. We must give them time to learn the basics and internalize them before becoming more admonishing and otherwise drawing the line of tolerance. Our world is not about tolerance according to God's idea. Now, he will accept anyone, Jew or Gentile, it matters not if, capital I, capital F, underline, exclamation point, they choose to accept his sacrifice and then begin the walk of following his commands. That's what he requires. It is not tolerance of lifestyles that are in direct contradiction to God's Torah. You obviously know, they're so blatant now, what I'm talking about. Now there's another application from which we may learn from this Padishah. Just as with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and everyone else, proper repentance must be completely unconditional. The penitent must acknowledge the wrong that he or she has done and resolve to improve, not to become perfect, because we're not going to make that. Not till we stand before Yeshua. But we must continue to try to improve regardless of any external factors. 
particularly one's repentance and subsequent Torah observance, should not depend on the success, as we perceive it, of one's prayers. That is, if one's prayers are answered, we must acknowledge as humans we are located on the forest floor. We cannot see the above canopy as does God. Very often people will remain resolute in their choice to follow God only if their prayers have a perceived favorable outcome. Otherwise, forget it. Even if one's situation perceivably deteriorates, we must remain steadfast and not deviate from our, our new level of commitment. Even if we falter this easily, we can be sure we are the fig tree spoken of in Matthew 13:21. But if we remain on the king's highway, no matter how much traffic that there is all around us, we can be certain that God will execute his perfect will for our best. Romans 8:28 through 38. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, last night I, I got a text uh, from the office manager at my office. I'm a, I'm a nurse, or was a nurse practitioner, and I had planned to retire <clears throat> on the 28th of this month, February. But I got a text last night saying that the supervising physician um, wanted me to retire as of today. So I have been denied uh, over a you know a month's worth of financial compensation. Now, how, did, how should I have handled it and how did I handle it? I am trusting God in this, that he will provide for me and my family. And when I went down to gather my things, uh, I said the same thing to everybody who was around me at the time. We must provide a living testimony for our God. If we love him, we need to show it to everyone around us, no matter what the circumstances. And I was reminded of that um, last night. So that might not seem significant to some, but financially it, it is to me. Uh, but I know that God will provide for uh, my families and my, my needs, no matter what. Now our Haftarah is out of Ezekiel 25, 28, 25 uh, through 29. Uh, this week's Haftarah starts with the ingathering of the exiles, reflecting back on God's promise in our Padishah. Quote, I will take you out of the suffering of Egypt, unquote. Ezekiel discusses the, the decimation of Pharaoh and Egypt, also reflecting the devastation wrought upon Egypt described in the Padishan. Ezekiel tells us what will occur during the ingathering of the exiles. Quote, when I gather in the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they have been scattered, and I have been sanctified through them in the eyes of the nations, then they shall dwell in their land that I gave to my servant, to Jacob, and they shall dwell upon it securely. Unquote. Ezekiel proceeds to convey prophecy regarding Pharaoh and Egypt foretelling the fall of the Egyptian empire. Egypt was punished for two reasons. First, they reneged on their promise to assist Israel against the attacking Babylonians. Second, they had incredible arrogance, considering themselves totally self-reliant on the bounty of the Nile instead of God. This is where our country is today, relying on our so-called own wisdom and our ingenuity. But you also see how rapidly... Socialism is taking over this country, and we are deteriorating just as Rome did. The Nile was their god, just as uh, human secularism is the god of the United States. It's interesting that God turned the waters of the Egyptian god, the Nile, to blood and killed the life within it. That's a teaching all in itself. This description fits America perfectly. Therefore, Ezekiel warns them, quote, And the land of Egypt shall be desolate and in ruins, 
and they shall know that I am the Lord, unquote. Quote, because he, Pharaoh said, the river is mine and I've made it, unquote. God warns that the land of Egypt will be empty and desolate for 40 years, after which God will return the people to the land to re-inhabit it, but it will no longer be an important nation to be reckoned with. Could this statement foretell the future of the United States? Only time will tell. Haftarah ends with another prophecy where God tells Ezekiel that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will be the one to conquer Egypt and take its riches. This was a reward given to him by God because he was accomplishing God's purpose by defeating the nation of Tyre. And again, God uses ungodly people and nations for the good of his people. So again, we need not be anxious when we see such things happening. Great Kaddish is out of Romans 9, 14 through 17. <clears throat> so let's look at the relationship between Exodus 9, 16 to Romans 9, 17. In this passage, Paul compares God's promise to believers and his promise to Israel. Now we know that Israel, as the bride of Yeshua, is in fact defined as true believers. Again, it is not the church. Therefore, this relationship should come as no surprise. Romans 8, 29 and 30 literally translates from the Aramaic, quote, And from beforehand he knew them and marked them with the likeness of the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those which beforehand he marked, he called, and those whom he called he justified, and those whom he justified he glorified, unquote. This is not a Calvinistic scripture, all right? We choose our own destiny, as I've said before. God just knows what we're going to choose. We don't know. We have to try, run the race to win the prize. We don't know what our end is. We know what we hope our end is. And we follow our God even if there was no rewards. We should follow our God because of his love for us and his sacrifice for us. Too many people want a tit for tat and that's not the way God works. <clears throat> the Aramaic does not address predestination but a foreknowledge of God as I just said. The text compares God's promise to believers with his promise to Israel in Romans 9, 1 through 4. Paul tells us God selected, elected, chose Israel, and he quotes passages from the Tanakh to support his statement. And again, he chose Israel. Israel chose to follow him. That's the ketubah. That's the marriage contract, the, the uh, commandments that were given at Sinai, and the command for Shabbat. It was a sign between him and the children of Israel forever. Take note that God hated Esau for giving up his inheritance of his own free will. Genesis 25, 24 through 34. Paul then quotes the Torah, quote, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Unquote. This highlights God's sovereign right to choose Israel. And keep in mind that Israel... The one who will become Yeshua's bride is a repentant people who follow God's commands out of love for him, regardless whether Jew or Gentile. Paul refers to our Padasha and then presents the parable of the potter and the clay, a parable common in Jewish literature. In this parable, the potter is God and man is the clay. The point is that God is sovereign over man, just as the potter is over the clay. Paul uses this illustration to justify God choosing Israel as his elect while quote-unquote hating Esau and allowing Pharaoh to continue in his rebellion toward God. Paul's point in Romans 9 is not to promote the Greek philosophy of fatalism or to indicate that man have no free will. 
Rather, his point is defend God's sovereign right to choose Israel. Furthermore, we can see in this week's Padisha that Pharaoh is not stripped of his free will, but it does not express God's sovereign right to create Pharaoh for this purpose. It does express this, God's sovereign right to create Pharaoh for his purpose. May we submit to God his just and merciful hands as the clay allows the potter to form a perfect vessel. Shalom.